Now, I, I want to speak about the devil this morning, and particularly from uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, verse 8. In the um, uh, St. James translation, it says, your opponent, the devil. And the emphasis is on the word your, your opponent, your enemy, the devil. My, my problem, I suppose, is that uh, although I do know lots of people here, I don't really know how much you know about the devil. I, I suppose that if you lived about 500 years ago, you would know a lot about the devil for they thought they knew a lot about the devil. And um, in my own country of England, and I would no doubt in many parts of Europe, uh, particularly in architecture, anything that was built around about 500 years ago would have some depiction of the devil. Uh, I, for some reason, have a, a great uh, acquaintance with Windsor Castle. Um, for various reasons, uh, and I, I can't understand to this day why, it, I think it was in 1952, I was stationed with the guards in Germany and trying to help with the mess and muddle that was going on there after the war. And then suddenly, if you remember, King George VI died. And uh, a group of us guardsmen were brought over from uh, Germany, living in lovely ex-Luftwaffe barracks, and brought back uh, to earth to live in Wellington barracks and Chelsea barracks and such places as that uh, for the ceremonial occasion of the funeral of King George VI and particular events that happened during that time. And uh, whether we had done a good job or they were just short of people, uh, they kept us there and trained us up for all that was going to happen during the coronation year of 1953. And during that time, uh, we were kind of seconded to various places, either uh, to Buckingham Palace or St. James's Palace or the Tower, or uh, and very often seconded to help uh, uh, at Windsor Castle with the guards uh, changing and so forth. By this time, I was a sergeant, and so I was sergeant of the guard wherever we went. And it was my responsibility, under the supervision of an officer, to take the sentries round to their various posts uh, in Windsor Castle, uh, on the 48-hour guard, two hours on, I would take them, read them their orders, tell them what they were to do. So I began to gather a little bit about uh, uh, Windsor Castle. 
And after I'd finished with the guards, I, I joined the Metropolitan Police. And I was appointed to the Royal A Division of uh, the Metropolitan Police, which was stationed at New Scotland Yard in Whitehall. Remember Whitehall? On to, on to? Yeah. And uh, from there also, strangely enough, we were very often seconded to uh, Windsor Castle when there was great occasions on the celebration of the Knights of the Garter. And so uh, then again, I found out quite a lot about uh, Windsor Castle. And uh, uh, after I'd been with the police about 10 years, uh, my wife and I felt the calling to full-time ministry uh, with the Salvation Army. And um, we had been... Uh, in full-time ministry for about eight years and were serving down in uh, uh, Bristol, down in southwest uh, England, and suddenly we had our marching orders, which said that in three weeks we were appointed to where? To the royal boroughs of Windsor and Maidenhead. And so for about five years, we oversighted the work of the Salvation Army there. But, but during that time, I was part of the minister's fraternal and so would share occasionally with other uh, full-time ministers in fellowship and in prayer and talking about the religious situation uh, there in, the, in, that, uh, in those two counties. And on occasions... Uh, we would meet in various places. But on occasions, the dean and chapter of St. George's Chapel in Windsor would invite us to go and uh, we'd share our fellowship there. So in some strange way, and then um, my, my, my daughter married uh, uh, a lifeguardsman. That's one of the people on, on horses. And uh, we call them donkey wallopers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they used to call us uh, uh, guardsmen, uh, wooden dots. But um, uh, uh, so she lived there, uh, she got married and, and lived there for about 15 years. So somehow or other, there's been an attraction to Windsor Castle. But, well, Windsor Castle, of course, as you know, was built or started to be built uh, by William the Conqueror. Uh, but St. George's Chapel came later on, about 500 years ago, believe it or not. And it was there in the grounds of the lower ward of the castle that St. George's Castle was, uh, uh, St. George's Chapel was built. And uh, I, I went off at a tandem there, sorry about that. But um, what, I was, what I was going to say about this is, I know St. George's Chapel. I've enjoyed going in there at all times and enjoyed the magnificent services there. But uh, you've got various carvings. For instance, there's a carving of a group of people chained together, being dragged into hell by the devils. And under one of the seats of the choir, where the choir sits, there's a carving of three friars 
and a, a fox and a stolen goose being trundled in a wheelbarrow into the uh, mouth of hell. And under another of the choir seats, there's a four-legged demon with horns and uh, wings. Um, and uh, there's an old man, perhaps he was a hermit, and who is taking food out of the same dish with a long ladle handle. I suppose it's a, an illustration of the proverb, who sups with the devil must have a long spoon so that you don't get contaminated. And also there in St. George's Chapel at Windsor, there are several carvings and pictures of bad kings with demons actively directing operations from the top of his crown. Uh, so that was one aspect of, 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 of architecture that demonstrates that in those days they seemed to know a lot about the devil. I went to, sc uh, to, to school in my teens or a college in the shadow of Lincoln Cathedral. And uh, if any of you know Lincoln Cathedral, it stands on a high hill there up in Lincolnshire. And if you go in there, right up in the transept, of Lincoln Cathedral, looking down on the congregation is a, a character, a figure, an ugly figure, and they call it the Lincoln Imp. And if you go to Lincoln, you don't come away without a little present, a pencil or a handkerchief or whatever, but it will have this carving of the Lincoln Imp. And the strange thing is that Lincoln Cathedral was also built around that time. So there's plenty of evidence, and I, I've no doubt throughout Europe you'll find the same thing. So what do we make of this, this kind of uh, thing? Do we still believe in the devil and in demons, or don't we? You see, we still talk about the devil in everyday speech. I've heard people say, what the devil are you doing here? Uh, or, uh, or they will say, um, our Tommy's a regular little devil. That's a, Tom, that's a Cockney mother talking about her son. Don't you dare call him a devil. I, I was telling the illustration of... Uh, uh, in my family, the word devil, uh, when I grew up, you couldn't use that word. It was a kind of swear word. My father hated the word devil. And uh, my elder siblings tell me that he was walking down the street of the market town in which we lived one day, and coming towards him was a, a woman with a little boy. And the little boy was misbehaving. And this woman got hold of him by the scruff of the neck and said, come here, you little devil. And my dad is alleged to have gone up to her and shook her hand profusely. And she kind of looked at him as much as to say, who the devil are you? I don't know you. 
And he said to her, say, you don't know me, lady. But he said, I'm very pleased to meet the devil's mother. <laughs> well, I don't know what you think about it. I mean, this may be only a manner of speaking that has somehow survived or uh, a misuse of words. Just as, just as we go on about speaking about the sun rising when we know that it doesn't rise. It's, it's us that's uh, moving. And I've often been asked whether Christians still believe in the devil. But of course the important question is not whether we believe in, in him, but whether we ought to believe in him. And it's not a, question, it's not a simple question to answer when you think about it. To anyone who thinks it's quite simple and who says that belief in the devil is a, 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 or in evil spirits is a kind of primitive super, superstition which uh, mature Christians should have outgrown, I would have to point out to you that there's more in the New Testament about the devil than there is in the Old Testament. The devil and demons. It looks as though the coming of God in the person of Jesus Christ into this world showed up the powers of evil in its true light. Whereas before, they were concealed. On the other hand, anyone who says you cannot possibly believe uh, in the devil, I would point out that you are not called upon to believe in the devil when you join the church. If you recited the Apostles' Creed, there's nothing in there about I believe in the devil. I believe in God, I believe in Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, I believe in the Holy Spirit doesn't say I believe in the devil. But if you've been a Christian for many years, you'll know that you're called upon, either at your baptism or your confirmation or your ded dedication or enrollment into some kind of fellowship throughout your life to renounce the devil and all his works. To renounce the devil and all his works. Now what does that mean? Well I think to begin with we don't need to take too seriously these carvings and pictures which uh, represent the devil as visible. What the Bible says is the devil is the invisible opponent of God and humans. He's the unseen enemy who is always surreptitiously working against God and his people and all that is good. If we turn to uh, St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13, you remember it's the parable of the weeds. Jesus told them a parable. St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13 and verse 24. Jesus told them another parable. 
The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed a good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed ears, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned and then gather the wheat and bring them into the barn. Notice at the beginning of that reading, it said, and whilst they were sleeping, so when they could not see the enemy came and sowed tears among them. And so the question is that whether beyond our visible opponents and our obvious temptations, behind all the things that we know that we are up against in this world, there is not an invisible and a much more subtle opponent who in all kinds of devious ways, is trying to trip us up. You see, there are some temptations that are obvious. Um, for instance, if a man is very hungry, he will be tempted to steal food if he gets the chance. If a man has got himself into a fix, he's tempted to tell a lie if he thinks he can get away with it. Now, temptations like those, uh, such as are dealt with in the Ten Commandments, are easy to understand and account for. We don't need the devil to tell us those. But you see, when God came into the world through Jesus Christ, he showed the powers of evil and the strategies of the tempter to be very, very much more subtle than anyone before had realized it. In fact, it's clear now that temptation is practically superhuman in its subtlety. Just a couple of examples might help just to make the, this point. For instance, you have a really good man an example to us all, a pillar of the church, um, a model citizen, and uh, a, a good father, a model churchman. You know the kind of man. And yet, because he is a good man, because he is a man of principles, he's a paragon of virtue, he yields to the temptation, although he's not aware of it, he yields to the temptation 
to be hard and senseless towards people who are not so good as he is. And he adopts that kind of holier-than-thou attitude. That is the devil doing his stuff. What he's doing is causing a blight on what otherwise would be admirable. Or there is my friend Dolly Saunders in Cardiff who was a widow, not very well off, but if you knew her, you would say that she really was the backbone of the church. She's the, if anyone was ill or was in any kind of trouble, she would be doing everything she could do in the background. And yet, though she never said anything about it, Dolly's life was poisoned because she is secretly jealous of Mrs. Hardcastle, whose husband was very rich. And if there was ever a bazaar or a fete or some opening that had to be done, it was always Mrs. Hardcastle who was chosen to do the opening ceremony and hit the headlines in the local paper. Casting a blight on something that otherwise would be admirable. Or there's the kind of pastor, a man, a very good man, a man who every church would like, a good visitor, a good preacher, a good sportsman. And one Sunday he preaches a sermon on humility. And he goes home and he's secretly proud that he's preached a good sermon on humility. People told him at the church as they were going out. Took the devil to think that one up. Now, <laughs> they may be simple examples remote from you, but I think if you will look into the matter, you will be able to see that there are plenty of examples uh, of equally diabolical temptations in your own experience. It's the very devil that we are up against, casting a blight on those things which otherwise would be very good. And you see, he never takes time off, never leaves us alone, he never goes abroad. He's always here. Except perhaps if you go to TCF or La Siesta on occasion. He's always here. Bishop Latimer was a vibrant Protestant preacher, preacher of the 16th century. And when Queen Mary, the Catholic Queen, had him burned at the stake for heresy. And he was asked who is the most diligent bishop and prelate of England? And he said, I will tell you, it's the devil. He's never, ever out of his diocese. The point really is, friends, is that 
Jesus Christ, when you come to him, makes you more and not less aware of the wiles of the devil and the strategies of the devil. One of the things that the Holy Spirit can do for us, the Holy Spirit which comes when we give our lives to Jesus Christ, one of the things that the Holy Spirit can do is to give us an uneasy conscience so that we may detect some of the subtle temptations which have so far escaped us, escaped our notice. How many times you've heard young Christians say, ever since I came to know Jesus Christ, I've had nothing but trouble. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. The devil works away at our weakest spot and at the spot where we are least likely to notice him. Now, it's risky to generalize in a matter like this. And if I was preaching in prison, I would probably say something different at this point. But in the case of uh, highly respectable people like yourselves, um, I should guess that the devil is most likely to succeed in tempting you to be self-satisfied and complacent. You see, being self-satisfied means that you no longer are disturbed by a sense that there's something wrong with you. It means that you're quite content to just jog along where you are and as you are. But you see, renouncing the devil and all his works means renouncing all those things that stop you pressing on towards the goal of the prize of the high calling of God in Jesus Christ when he called you. The devil can even make you forget that you have such a high calling or that there is such a goal set before you and can make you forget that in the end nothing matters except reaching that high goal. Well, we don't really have to bother whether the devil is best described as a person or as a power or a supernatural agency, so long as you take him seriously. What you have to do is not define him but you have to renounce him. And if you imagine that at this moment he is leaving you alone and that what I've been saying does not somehow apply to you, that will be a feather in his cap. Remember, our text says, your opponent, the devil, the devil is your opponent and not only your neighbours.
I've, I've requested the last song for us to sing. It's uh, by John Bunyan, the famous song by John Bunyan. And um, uh, in all the modern English hymnals, there's just three verses. But in his original one, there's another verse which says something about uh, hobgoblins and foul fiends. So I thought it would be interesting to... I haven't a clue what a hobgoblin is. It just reminds me of, uh, of uh, some of these horror films that you see or, or what's his name of the young lad? Harry Potter, something like that. But anyway, it, it's one of these characters. So we've included that verse in this song. But John Bunyan lived about 500 years ago and he wrote that uh, wonderful exposition, uh, Pilgrim's Progress, which perhaps in a spiritual sense is uh, second to the Bible in its inspiration and help. So let's just think about uh, this uh, text, Your Opponent, the Devil, as we sing our last song together. Thank you. <laughs>